0: The amazing thing about life is that you continue to learn things about yourself, and um, I'm sure you're like me in that you learn new lessons every day about who you are and how God's made you, while at the same time you get reaffirmed into some things that you already knew about yourself. And uh, many of you guys know I was in Ecuador for a week, and then last week on spring break I took the fam to Florida, and I, I relearned something about myself. Um, I love to push the envelope, I like extreme things, I like, I like things that very few people will do, it doesn't matter the context or the forum, I have a natural lure to that, and so, when I saw a kite in the beach store, um, I started thinking to myself, I was like, okay, um, I've flown a kite before in Missouri, and honestly, it's generally lame, because the wind isn't great, but I was like, I wonder how high you could get a kite, right, and I just sat there looking at the kites in the beach store, wondering, like, I wonder if I could get this hundred feet high. I'm wondering maybe if I could get it 200 or 300 or 400 feet high. And and my kids were there with me, and they said, Daddy, uh, is everything okay? Because they could see that my heart was already like bouncing out of my chest. I, w- I was excited. And so I didn't just buy one kite; I bought several. Okay, much to my wife's uh, chagrin. Uh, Came home with two spools of string that measured 800 feet long, um, five kites, and my plan was this, okay? Maybe if I tie one on the end, okay, a substantial kite, a good kite, one that has some, some breadth to it, right? And then if I, like, let them go and then interval them, then maybe, like, the drag of the string won't be very great, and you could actually maybe get a kite in the stratosphere, and, um, and so I, I started. I, like, put the first kite on. It was a Blue Angel airplane, so it was majestic and gorgeous and awesome and let her go. And, man, she was, just, she was flying incredibly, right? And then I attached the second kite, right? And I, it was like this moment of what's going to happen. And, man, she just, like, took off. I don't know if it was a female or not, but she, you know, it looked beautiful, right? And uh, so what ended up happening is, uh, well, let me just show you the picture. This is going to look like a UFO sighting. Um, This is as zoomed in as I could get on my iPhone. The top red square is my top kite, okay? Now, um, by using the Pythagorean theorem, is that correct? Am I right? And my good buddy Justin Sichter, I was able to figure out that my top kite reached about 500 feet in the air, okay? Those were three other kites at intervals, and then there's another one that's closer to me, like, if I would have strapped this thing like a belt around my waist, like it probably, I probably could have water skied, okay? Like, there was a lot of tautness to it, right? Well, I wheel all of them in. It, it takes a half an hour to get them all in. And uh, because uh, the Blue Angel is so majestic and beautiful, um, I decide as I'm walking back to our home, you know what would be awesome? Is if we used her as like a, uh, a home decoration, right? Uh, the wind's still strong. We're good, and so... I just put the spool right in the front yard and there she was, like, flying, you know, 50, 60 feet in the air, just happy as a lark, and, um, I go upstairs and I begin to wash dishes, and then all of a sudden, um, I hear some, um, um, what's the best way of saying it? Some explicitives? Is that the right? I, I I hear some curse words from outside, and I was like, hmm, you know, I kind of like, like, what's, what's going on? This is a nice community, you know, I'm not sure what the problem is, and, um, and so I see some people running in the street, you know, don't think anything about it. I guess, you know, they just use that kind of language. But then I, I took a second glance, and I noticed that uh, I couldn't see the kite. Now, this was a moment of terror for me because, like, the Blue Angel and I had become friends, right? Like, this is, like, I've, you know, she has flown near near Air Force, you know, plane height. And so I go down, and uh, I'm, I start looking around for the kite. And, um, and what had happened is... Uh, Blue Angel, um, God love her, she she had uh, landed in some trees about 100 yards away, making the tightest trip line you could possibly imagine across the street. Spool in our front yard. Come to find out, there was a team that was training for a triathlon uh, there in the neighborhood. And so what happened is, (laughs) one by one, these people were tripping over themselves (laughs) over the trip line. And so when I heard the explicitives, like, and I, you know, I noticed that they were kind of struggling running. Maybe I I thought just because they were tired, they were just one after another falling (laughs) over this trip line. Only to look over to the spool sitting in our front yard. And so when I figured this out, I kind of like, you know, did a double, you know, I like kicked the spool over, right? And I know you're all wondering, I was able to save uh, the blue angel out of the trees. I know all of you were wondering that. Um, Clearly, like, it was my responsibility, right? Like, they look over, they see the spool, they see the kite, they think this is some mastermind plan to get after the triathletes. Um, I had to take responsibility. (laughs) Uh, It's amazing to me uh, how often we... um, look at responsibility and who's to take it as some curse. I've been pondering a lot about responsibility and authority and fault and design. And I think the best way for me to ask uh, the right question right now for us is to say it this way. What things in your life do you believe God is responsible for? I don't claim for um, any stretch of the imagination that this is a light-hearted question. Uh, I know that you guys will go home tonight and still be wondering, what things do I give God responsibility for? I think you'll notice that you go through seasons where you pick and choose. There's other seasons where it's all Him and other seasons where you wish it wasn't Him at all. Tonight what happens is God takes a whole lot of responsibility. Rightfully so. A lot's happened. Guess what? We're in our last chapter now of Joshua. Three weeks left. Three weeks left. We enter the last chapter, the last saga, nearing Joshua's death. And tonight we're going to learn why does God take responsibility and then what are the implications on everyone else wherever they sit. So open your Bibles, turn into your phones, my friends, to the last chapter in our journey in Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. So thankful uh, for both Jared and Brandon the last couple of weeks. Uh, supremely blessed by both of those brothers. I had uh, Andrew send me the teachings quickly. Last week we were able to listen uh, to Brandon's sermon about 10 minutes after he had preached it uh, in Florida. I was so blessed by the both of them and uh, anxious just to be back with you guys tonight. So Joshua chapter 24, let's start, let's start here in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel... To What's the word there? To Shechem. And summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And the scripture says they presented themselves before God. Now when Jared taught a couple weeks ago, we see a similar collection of people, but now we see a new venue. That venue is Shechem. Cue of the map. Next slide. This is Shechem. It's central. Okay, we've seen a lot of the territory of Canaan. Shechem is, um, is in a really beautiful setting. Next slide. It, it ends up being between two mounts. Mount Gerizim on the left, Mount e- e- Ebal on the right, and Shechem kind of sits right, right there in the crevice. And what happens is Shechem, we've already studied actually. Earlier in Joshua, uh, this, this territory, this uh, land came up. Next slide, I want to show it to you just so we're all on the same page. In Joshua chapter 8, next slide there if you can. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with the elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark. M- many uh, of you will remember this, okay? Before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant to the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, the mount we just saw, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And so what we saw is the ark was essentially at Shechem, and you have people on both sides. But Joshua 8 isn't the only time we see Shechem. In fact, it uh, happened earlier in Genesis chapter 35. Look at this. And they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had in a moment of collective repentance. And the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under uh, the terebinth tree that was near, that's right, Shechem. So Jacob, a descendant of Abraham, finds himself taking all of these idolatrous things and burying them at Shechem. But this isn't the only time either that Shechem comes up. In fact, it plays a significant role in the nation of Israel, Genesis 12. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abraham and Jacob and earlier and Joshua, and now in this epic location, Joshua summons all of these leaders at this historical place. Have you ever felt like uh, before that you were walking on holy ground? Have you ever been in a place before where like all of a sudden you knew this place is significant? I had the blessing of traveling to Israel. And uh, one morning, about 2 a.m., God woke me up as we were staying on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I was 19 years old, uh, somewhat naive, but super passionate about Jesus. And uh, I felt like the Lord was calling me just to go down to the sea. And and so I went down to the beach of the Sea of Galilee. And I know uh, that some could say this was hallucination, but I was like looking out across the sea picturing Jesus walk on the water. I'm seeing the calling of the disciples. I'm watching the fish catch come in. Like all of the pieces of the gospel accounts that happen at the sea are there. And I remember having the sense in that moment like this is holy ground. And I can't even articulate all the things that were going through my mind or I was feeling, but there was this overwhelming sense that this place is set apart. Shechem is set apart. Great leaders in the nation of Israel have gathered there, and now Joshua and all of these leaders. And so, if we look again at verse 1, let's look at what happens. They don't just gather, but then they present themselves to the Lord. This is uh, ancient language used to ratify a covenant, uh, ancient language used to say, let's have a conversation. All of these leaders present themselves to the Lord. Next slide. Now, there's going to be four components to God's responsibility, the things he takes responsibility for. So the first thing he's going to do in verses 2, 3, and 4 is he's going to take responsibility for the patriarchs. Okay, so let's start here in verse 2. Here we go. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, note that first, Joshua speaking as a prophet, on behalf of God, is going to say things that we can only take to mean are coming straight from the mouth of God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at this. Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abram, and Nahor, and please see this, and they served what? They served what? Come on. Other gods. Now, I say all the time here that Abram, when he was called by God, was a pagan man from a pagan land. And this is one more example of that affirmation. Uh, Abram isn't looking for God. Listen, Abram doesn't find God. Abram isn't lost. And then all of a sudden says, oh Lord. Abram is lost And God does the calling, and God does the finding, and God does the pursuing. Look, his family from a pagan land serving who? Other lowercase gods. And so here in the calling of this patriarch, right at the beginning of God's people, we see this beautiful image of God going after Abraham. I've got a plan. There's my man. And the question is, why? Why Abram? I say the same thing about you i say the same thing about me all i know is scripture says he chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong how many of you have ever felt like why is god doing a work in my life and maybe the question that you're asking is precisely the point just so maybe you and others would ask it because it makes no sense that god could use you that he could use you as a mouthpiece and an ambassador for the lord those of you that feel inadequate Maybe for some of you will be at the the, the very precipice of humility. God goes after Abram, this man, family, was worshiping other gods. Look at this in verse 3. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring. I gave him who? Come on. I gave him Isaac. No, 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 no. Have you ever laughed in the face of God? Like laughed at him, like audible laughing. Have you ever done that? Like you're reading scripture and you're just like, seriously, God, that's ridiculous. I will never ever be able to submit to that. Or he calls you to something specific and you're like, seriously? You're by yourself so you can laugh out loud. It's cool, like singing in your car, right? No one's gonna hear you. Have you ever laughed in the face of God? Interesting to note that Father Abraham, who had several sons, who was the patriarch of the Israelite nation, Hilariously laughed in the face of God. Q Genesis, check this out, next slide. In 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Isaac was a miracle baby. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. You do the math, right? Like, doesn't seem physically possible at this point. Okay. And so God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a kid. And he literally is laughing, the patriarch of the Israelite nation, laughing at God. Seriously, this will never work. And it does. God gives him Isaac. Beautiful language. And then we see this in verse 4. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, the twins. How many of you guys in here are twins, just so we can relate? Twins. We have, dude, we couldn't have set this up any better. This is awesome. It would have been so, yeah, if he was sitting right next to you, we could have had, like, hugged it out. This would have been perfect. Any other twin sets here? Just so we can, okay. Yeah, that's right. Pastor Jeff is a twin. I forgot about that. Any others on this side? Okay, so we have a couple sets of twins. Uh, Jacob and Esau weren't the, um, how could we say this? They weren't like the best of buddy kind of twins. In fact, uh, what Scripture records in a prophetic way is that Jacob and Esau will come out and they will forever be divided and pretty much angry at each other, their lives. In fact, uh, the twin that was born second, which is Jacob, was literally grabbing the heel of Esau. Needless to say, let's keep reading here, okay? And I gave, uh, says God through Joshua, Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Now, one more note on the twins. Uh, they're twins. Esau born first. Jacob comes out second. Ancient Israel is all about birthright and inheritance. The order that you're born. How many firstborns here? Holler. Okay. Yes. All right. Now, imagine this. Imagine you're a firstborn. And imagine you've been promised an insane inheritance. Like, you're going to get, two, let's say, 2.2 2 million dollars and a pasture of cows. I just threw that in for fun, right? Seems contextual, okay? You're gonna get all of that, right? And then one day you're hungry. You're like, you're starving. And you see that your brother is making cabbage soup, right? Or your sister, as it were. And so you come to them and you say, hey, listen, I've got a plan. I will sell you my share of the inheritance, 2.2 million dollars, and a pasture of cows if you will only give me that bowl of cabbage stew." Now, how many of you would make that deal? Nada. We have one. Okay, thank you for the honesty. Cubs fan, classic. Now, um, now, this is exactly, this is exactly what Esau does. Esau, though born first, sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of lentil stew. As he says in the scripture, because he was starving. And listen, all, we all get hangry sometimes, you know? Like, when you get hungry, you can make some bad decisions. This is a horrible failure, right? And so what happens is, because of this selling of the birthright, now all of a sudden God chooses to send his, uh, his people through the lineage of Jacob. So from the patriarchs, let's make a summary statement. Next slide. God is, uh, was responsible for the calling of, of patriarchs and a people to himself. Through Joshua, God is saying, I did that. I called Abram, I called Isaac, I called Jacob, and I called all of you. That's me. I did that. Are we all together? God is taking responsibility. No one else did this. These people didn't find me. I found them. These people didn't create a good business plan, present it to me, and then I said, yes, you are my people. No, God initiated this covenant between he and the nation of Israel. Are we together, okay. So let's look at the second, um, the second responsibility. Moving now to the Exodus. The end of verse four, we saw that Jacob goes down to Egypt, sets us up for verse five. Here we go. And I sent Moses and Aaron And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Now, um, there are times when I read the word and something, something just hits me for whatever reason, just like it hits you through the spirit. And so I'm picturing all of these people in Shechem hearing this word remember that many of their ancestors died in the wilderness. Many of them deeply, richly impacted by this lineage. And what verse 5 says is, I sent Moses and Aaron to plague Egypt, and I brought you out from over 400 years of slavery. Now, if you've been enslaved for 400 years, my guess is you think you're not getting out. If you're looking at the Egyptians who are whipping you day in and day out, my guess is you start to lose hope that there's ever a rescue. Next slide. Let me say it this way. What I've learned is redemption has no barriers at all. Every person in this room who is a follower of the Lord Jesus is proof of this truth. Some of you have felt unsavable There's no way God could do a work in me. I've done too much. The slavery to sin has held me for too many years. There's no escaping. The power of the enemy or the power of my flesh is too great. Some of you, that's not a past statement, it's right now. Have this overwhelming sense of, I cannot be redeemed. But what Scripture shows, including the release of the nation of Israel from 430 years of slavery, is that redemption being brought back has no barriers when God is the one doing the redeeming. Anyone can be redeemed in Christ. Anyone can be sought after by God. Anyone can experience repentance and the fruits of the Spirit. And at the moment, you feel too far gone. Maybe that's the exact moment that your redemption story begins. Redemption has no barriers. God brings His people out after what seems like an impossible task. The stronghold of the Egyptian slavery. But oh my friends, He does it anyway. So check this out in verse 6. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Look at verse seven. This is awesome. And when they cried to the Lord, now he moves to a third person, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. You see that? What I did. And you lived in the wilderness then after that redemption for a long, long time. Let's say it this way next Slide, in summary, God was responsible for saving his people from slavery and from an impending assault. He doesn't just release them from slavery. All of a sudden, the Egyptians pursue them, and God's like, uh, and this is where you all die. I just kind of brought you out of slavery to play a little game of cat and mouse. Now the Egyptians are following you, now everyone dies. He doesn't. Instead, anyone who's seen the Ten Commandments, the old Charlton Heston, you know, and God said, you know, this great, epic, horrible, graphic, you know, movie of the sea parting, and the nation of Israel goes across, and then all of a sudden, the waters envelop Egypt in judgment and wrath. And who is responsible? God says, I did. I did that. I saved you. And then though it seemed like you were going to die just after being freed, guess what? I saved you again. You see what's happening here. Now, just for a moment. Can you imagine what's going on in the people? Can you imagine being on this very sacred historical place and hearing Joshua communicate the words of God and I did that and I did that and I did that as well. Next Slide. I struggle with this, though. Like, no one would argue the nation of Israel right now, the truths that God has shared. But can I ask you, why in the world, when it seems clear that God has been the one responsible, why do we compete for glory? Why do we toil in exhaustion? competing to make our name great, competing for some sort of self-righteous note uh, next to our name that people would say, oh, but you. Like, look around you. God's responsible, oh my goodness, in his sovereignty for everything. A lot of people struggle with this. At the end of the day, if he's a sovereign king, then that means no matter what happens, it at least happens under the allowance of God. Because if anything God could stop anything. Agree? Do you guys agree with me? If God can stop anything, then that means everything that is happening is at least under his allowance. Are we together? So that means if he is some sort of way responsible for everything, if he could stop anything, then why are we competing for glory? Uh, I was in high school and I had a group of friends And uh, we'd all made this pact together. And the pact was, uh, we're not gonna drink, we're not gonna smoke, we're not gonna have sex, no rock and roll. Uh, The rock and roll part was an add-on later, like it wasn't part of the initial pact. It just kind of rhymed all together there. And um, one by one, my friends started falling, Um, started hearing about their drunkenness and hearing about uh, the girls. And there was a night... um, where we had all went out on our senior night and uh, my buddies were out there and they were all getting drunk. And I remember sitting in my car overwhelmed by self-righteousness. I remember gloating in pride and arrogance in the fact that I wasn't struggling like they were. I remember sitting in my car two in the morning watching all of them passed out on the ground, feeling inside of me how much better I was. True story, then I had to use the restroom, and so I went to the outhouse, only to find there, passed out in the outhouse, one of my friends. And it was like staring me in the face was the power of what sin could do. And all of a sudden, overwhelmed by God's voice, hearing, why do you think you're so different? I saved you from this and you haven't done a thing in it. I think we compete for God's glory because there's something about self-righteousness that makes us feel like we're offering God something that matters. It's why so many of you will say that you believe in a grace-only salvation, but at the core of your heart, you're still trying to earn it. God, look what I did. You see what I did for you? Trying to allow your actions to elicit a response from God instead of your actions being in response to God. Do you guys see the difference? That somehow we, on the offering plate to the Lord, say, look at how awesome I am, God. I serve 50 homeless people today. I gave everything I had to the poor. I didn't even take advantage of anyone on my taxes. God, I am so righteous. Look at me, Lord. And the scripture says our righteousness is as filthy menstrual rags. Instead of everything that we're doing outside and in response to what God has done. What if you stopped competing? What if I stopped competing? What if part of the fruit tonight was that God cut you at your knees and you all of a sudden became disinterested at the core of your heart, not by verbiage, at the core of your heart, God, I really desire no glory at all. I want every person, neighbor, coworker, classmate to know that I am about one thing and one thing alone and that's your glory because you're the one doing the work. You're the one that's doing the saving. You're the one that's doing the sanctifying. You're the one that's doing the growing. You're the one that's doing the loving. You're the one that's doing and extending the mercy. You're the one. We have that opportunity, my friends, to tell this world this is literally not about us. We're good at saying that, much different at living that, but what if tonight that process in your heart began? So next slide. Let's look at the next piece of God's responsibility. Transjordan, I know, is a a strange word. Uh, Simply geographically, it's what happens on the other side of the Jordan, okay? Uh, You're welcome for that, okay? It felt kind of smart to say that, but it actually turns out not at all, all right? Uh, So let's start here. Look at verse 8. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them. I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Look at this, verse nine, really interesting story. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hang with me, arose and fought against Israel and he sent and invited anyone? Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. Verse 10, hang with me. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. Okay, okay, hold on a second. Who is Balaam? Balak? All these characters. Now, if you want to study a really, really awesome story, Numbers chapter twenty-two tonight before you go to bed. Okay, that's your reading. And what you're going to hear about is the story story of Balak and Balaam. Uh, some of you guys have heard of Balaam's donkey. Have you guys ever heard of that? Right? Uh, it's the talking donkey in the scripture. Okay. So I know that there are certain Nickelodeon and Disney Channel cartoons that, you know, show us animals that are talking. The Bible does one way better, okay? There's a talking donkey, and it's Balaam's donkey, all right? It's Numbers 22. Again, this is like great reading for later, right? But well, what happens is, what happens is, uh, the Israelites are starting to beat armies. In fact, they've beaten two now on the other side of the Jordan. And this king of Moab gets really, really scared. And so he calls for this diviner in Balaam. Because he believes that whatever Balaam blesses will be blessed. And whatever Balaam curses will be cursed. And so he attempts to get Balaam to curse the people of Israel so that the Moabites will win. Are we all together? Okay. And so all that God is saying here to the nation of Israel is, in verse 10, I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. He didn't curse you. So I delivered you out of his hand. You guys, see what happens. God's like, the attempt was to get you to be cursed but I'm true to my word. Because back in Genesis chapter 12, I told Father Abram that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and I will make your name great. Next slide. Let's say it this way. God was responsible for fighting for his people and delivering them from their enemies. Now, this word deliver, that finds its way in verse 10 and here in our description. Um, I know some of you guys enjoy warm movies. The word deliver here is like, imagine this. Imagine a bunch of of soldiers in trouble. And all of a sudden, a kite, I mean, all of a sudden, a helicopter, um, like, finds its way over the people that are in trouble. And there's, like, no hope. All is lost. These soldiers are surrounded. But a helicopter swoops in and snatches them up, and takes these soldiers away and rescues them. That's what the Hebrew word deliver here implies. All hope is lost. Like we're headed towards destruction, and then all of a sudden God, mighty right arm, delivers them. Now our last subject here of God's responsibility is where we've been here recently, the promised land, verse 11. Look at this. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites. Remember all this? Uh, The Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. I gave them into your hand. Verse 12. And I sent, look at this, the hornet. Here we go. Now we're talking. I sent the hornet before you which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. Now, had to do quite a bit of study on the hornet. What is the hornet here, right? Is this a literal insect, okay? So if you want to Google image hornet, it's an interesting study, okay? I don't believe here this is a literal insect. I believe here the image is that God went before the nation of Israel to send out, soften the enemy, take care of things. And most of you in here in Christ have experienced that exact same thing. So listen to this. We were in Ecuador. Um, Guys, the fruit of our trip, starting next week, you're going to start to see how we as a church can be a part of this breaking the chains of the generational sin in Santana. The foundation has been laid, and I don't want to share any Come next week, and you're going to see how we can participate in that. But one day, we went to a neighboring village called Palciaco. We'd shared with the kids there, um, shared in a school, and then we started playing with the kids. And I was in the middle of the soccer field, and I looked to my left, and there sitting on a rock was the principal of this school, for lack of a better term, one of the strongest women I've ever been around. I mean, she was like so animated and passionate about uh, what she was doing with the kids and she just like was sitting on a rock all by herself. I know it's difficult to see spiritual warfare. And I know that when you start talking about spiritual warfare, a lot of you get really weirded out. Start picturing like Satan in some costume running around here. But in that precise moment, I wouldn't have called it a hornet, but I could feel God going before me and clearing the path of the enemy so that he could do an amazing work. I sensed him telling me to go and sit by her, and so uh, many of you you guys may not know this, but I can't speak Spanish. Um, I know that's to many of your surprise, okay? I'm trying. I'm still praying that one day something will come together, all right? So I... I grab Steve, our missionary partner, and I say, hey, I feel like we're supposed to talk to this woman. And we sit on the rock, the hornet gone before us. And I just say, what is going on in your life? That was my only question. And she looks up from looking down as if she had been waiting her entire life on that question. As if no one had ever asked her that before. Two days ago, she had been beaten by her husband so badly that she didn't know what to do. Looking at her children, looking at her husband, literally telling us, like, what I've decided is I I guess I should just stay in this abusive relationship. What am I to do? Like, he's part of the provider for a family, like, and she's just weeping and weeping and weeping. But listen, the hornet had gone before the enemy's stronghold in that moment loosed. And we began to talk about the hope of Christ and the power of Christ and the hope of a good father and the hope that, listen, you, by the power of the Spirit of God, can walk away from this abusive relationship and find your provision in Him alone. And we were just sharing hope after hope, and you could watch her countenance. She had wept for 15 minutes straight just after asking one question. The hornet gone before the Spirit of God, clearing the path of the enemies, and all of a sudden he's got to watch this woman come alive in the Spirit of God. And then Pastor Dario, the church planner who we support is there, and he's laying his hands on her and praying for her. There's discipleship and encouragement that's going on. Like, when God goes before and clears the path of a very real enemy, Bondage is broken, my friends. It's broken. And that's what Scripture is saying here. Listen, the hornet went before. I cleared the path. Enemy after enemy were just given into your hands. That's what happens when I go in front. And so listen, I know some of you negate spiritual warfare, but I pray right now that we would together wake up. We have a very real enemy, but an unbelievable clearing the path God. Are you ready for verse 13? Are you ready? Here we go. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So, just in case anyone's curious, Next slide, let's summarize it this way. God was responsible for providing a land, providing a path to the land, and providing provision on the land. Is there any doubt what God's intentions are in verses 1 to 13 of Joshua chapter 24? Now, I've been doing something on your screen all along. Some of you have noticed, some of you probably not but I've been underlying all the statements that God has made. There's certainly been some repeats, but there's been some powerful I statements. Let's look at them, shall we? Next slide. I took, I gave, I sent. I plagued, I brought, I did, I destroyed, I would not. I delivered. We just heard the brief history of the nation of Israel to date, I want to ask you are there any blanks that you could fill in on the right side of these statements? If God was talking about your life is there some testimony to share about ways that he sent you? About ways that he gave? About things my friends that he destroyed? About actions that he did. I am sick and tired in my life not being stirred by the works of God. Anyone else? Look at this list. Just think for a second about what God has done. I am so tired of finding myself in a lethargic, complacent response. When God speaks through Joshua at this powerful place of Shechem and the response must be worship. You have done nothing, he says to the nation of Israel. I have done everything. I brought you out of the land. I gave you the land. I provided you fruit on the land at every given point. Your enemies were handed over to you. They were fighting against you and yet I gave them into your hand. I did the work but he didn't share it with Israel and he doesn't remind us now so that we applaud him like a crowd watching some game. I believe he's done it so that we would find ourselves face down. I believe he's provided it in the reminder now for you so that all the times that you've become forgetful, something right now happens in you. Next slide. So I was thinking just about this one. The rescue. The pulling out of. The saving. The giving you hope. Let me ask it this way. Next slide. In speaking about your life, how would God finish this statement? I delivered you from Fill in the blank. Let's stand together, church. (laughs) There's a whole lot of things that go in that blank, amen? And here's what we're going to do tonight, church, right now. Right now. We're going to speak those things out. in a hurry. There's going to be things right now spoken out, many at the same time, that will be things you've never shared. But right now, just prompted by the Spirit to give thanks for what God has delivered you from. We're going to take some time, and as a church, answer this question he has delivered me from and we're just going to begin to speak those out for some of you this will be incredibly awkward but i'm telling you right now this is another form of worship and praise filling this room with the testimonies of rescue maybe for some of you it'll be a sin and addiction just like Justin shared earlier, how God had delivered him out of pornography. For others of you, it'll be your salvation. Others of you, some nasty relationship. You name it, he's done the delivering. There's been no competition for the glory. He alone does the saving. He alone does the delivering. So right now, as we worship, as God leads you, speak these things out loud, silently. Let's fill this room with how God has delivered us. Come on.